Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York's legislative leaders kicked off what's expected to be intense state budget negotiations this week with a public meeting to lay out their priorities on housing, crime, taxes, and other issues as talks with Governor Kathy Hochul intensify with the budget due April 1st. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Thank you all for joining us for this year's mothership. The next step as we move forward in our budget process. The meeting of the General Conference Committee, nicknamed among lawmakers the mothership, marks the start of the end phase of budget talks, when legislative leaders start making deals with the governor in order to agree on a spending plan. Senate Leader Andrea Stork-Cousins and Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie, both Democrats, already detailed their plans on March 15th. In them, they reject several key proposals by Governor Hochul, who's also a Democrat, including further revisions to the state's controversial bail reform laws. They ended many forms of cash bail. The Senate and Assembly budgets also do not include Hochul's proposal to allow the state to override local zoning laws to build more housing. And they said no to the governor's plan to alter the rules to allow more charter schools. And they're against raising tuition at public colleges and universities. Stuart Cousin says they want to instead direct monetary support directly to campuses. We're also investing in higher education while rejecting tuition increases for SUNY and CUNY. Democratic leaders also are rejecting Hochul's plan to ban flavored tobacco products, including menthol cigarettes, says Speaker Hasty. I don't think there's enough support to support the governor's proposal, at least amongst our members at this point. Republicans, who are in the minority party in both houses, say they disagree with many items in the Democrats' plans. Senate GOP leader Robert Ort says he backs Hochul's proposal on bail reform. It would give judges more discretion when deciding on charges of serious crimes. But he says even the governor doesn't go far enough to reverse what he calls the law's harmful effects. We need to address violent crime and the fallout of this disastrous bail and discovery reforms. Ort says the Democrat spending plans also don't address the $11 billion unemployment insurance debt that New York owes to the federal government. Currently, the state is requiring that private businesses contribute more to pay that back. Republicans also object to new taxes in the Democratic legislators' budgets. Both the Assembly and Senate want to raise income taxes on New Yorkers making more than $5 million. Assembly Minority Leader Will Barkley is objecting to the Assembly Democrats' proposal to impose an 8 percent tax on subscriptions to streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime. With the proposals to tax streaming services, the state is now going to charge you to watch Ted Lasso. With the bigger-than-usual differences between the governor's and legislators' spending plans, all say it will be a challenge to get everything done by the March 31st deadline. Speaker Hastie says he won't mind if the spending plan is a little bit late. I've always felt a good budget is more important than an on-time budget. Hochul has already said she also would rather get the budget agreement she wants, even if it comes later in April. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with Republican New York State Assembly Minority Leader William Barclay. The issue was bail reform, a sticking point in this year's budget for Republicans as well as progressive Democrats. Allen begins by asking Minority Leader Barclay about how he would like to see the law changed. Our crime rates, particularly shootings, are at historic highs. So there's some areas where crime's down, other areas that they've still got some work to do. As I said, bail reform, raise the age, these things don't take place in a vacuum. They're not some theoretical policy that, you know, everybody can feel good about passing. They have real-world consequences. And I'm not saying bail reform, raise the age, you know, those alone are, are, are causing the increase in crime, but they're certainly contributing to it. So reform needs to be done. I hope the governor sticks to her guns and will try to get it done through the budget when she has the most uh, uh, most uh, ability to get something done. I'm a little worried because of her press conference yesterday. It seemed like she was equivocating a little bit on, uh, on whether she's going to push those through or not. So I hope she does, and I think it's the time is right to do it now. Well, Will Barclay, uh, that's very interesting stuff. On bail reform, what is it in bail reform that you think needs our attention? Well, I, we always think we need to go farther than the governor. We think uh, we should have judges have discretion when the, the offender is a danger to the community. As I've mentioned, I think, on this show before, but many other interviews, other states like New Jersey that uh, instituted bail reform have that dangerousness uh, ability in, in their laws. I don't know why we, seems like common sense and why we can't get that done in New York. We ought to have trust our judges to be able to make that type of determination. Well, it's interesting. There will be those who think that bail reform is basically either too liberal or too conservative. What do we say about that? Well, I said this at the press conference. We're not just you know knee-jerk reaction against any kind of changes to the criminal justice system. When there's injustices in the criminal justice system, they ought to be addressed. But what the Democrats have done with bail, with raise the age, is they've just thrown the whole system out. I've used this example. Instead of using a scalpel to make reforms, they used a chainsaw. And they didn't talk to the DAs. They didn't get any insight from law enforcement. And as a result, we're suffering through some bad public policy. Could we be a little bit more specific? What is it in bail reform? What is it in these changes that troubles you so much? Well, first, pick raise the age. There's no disclosure for prior crimes and raise the age. So even, uh, say it goes to family court, or if it's a violent felony, it would go to the, uh, it's not, it's a criminal section of family court. But the judges and the prosecutors can't look at a prior record. So what we're doing is some of these, particularly with gun charges, people can be arrested multiple times on gun charges. It's like it'd be their first offense into perpetuity, and they just put them back out on the street. And frankly, Alan, that's not helping anyone. It's certainly not providing safety for the community, but it's also not good for the offender because they're not getting any support. They're just being put back on the street, and usually, you know, they're in not a good environment, whether it's gang-related, family-related, or whatever. And just to put them back in that is not helping them either. So it's not good for the offender. It's not good for the public safety. It's not very good, obviously, for any of the victims of the crime. You sound so reasonable in all of this. Is there anything you do? Is there anything that we need to pay particular attention to here? Well, I think, again, it's having the political will to make these changes and maybe understanding that we went too far initially. I know that's hard for any elected official to admit maybe they made a mistake and just 
go back, institute what I see as common sense changes to this law. And there's no reason it can't be bipartisan. And I'm happy that there is bipartisan support for some of the changes we're, we're being proposed uh, by you know, di- district attorneys across the state. Earlier this week, you wrote a letter to Governor Hochul and Comptroller DiNapoli about the not-so-smooth rollout of the cannabis program. What did the letter say, and what are your recommendations? Well, we'd like to see the whole program audited. I think the rollout has been a disaster. Uh, they still don't haven't licensed. I think they've only licensed two or three operations, or maybe more, four operations. Uh, and they're supposed to have a $150 million fund. Apparently, they don't have any money to do that. And as a result, uh, because we you know, lowered the prosecution for marijuana, you see all these black market uh, places uh, pop up around, really, in New York City. But I think they're also throughout the state. And uh, we want to have the whole system essentially audited by the controller, and that's what we're requesting. I was pleased uh, that the governor did apparently address in her press conference uh, that she is going to start cracking down on these illegal black market uh, retail establishments. So we keep hearing about the illegal cannabis shop that are open in New York City. You just mentioned some of this. Legalization was supposed to end the black market, but the cost to buy legal cannabis is much higher than sticking with an illegal dealer. Should the price be dropped? Well, this is why I've had trouble seeing exactly how this is going to work in New York State, because anytime you have government involved, they want to tax it, rightfully so, uh, and they're going to try to regulate it heavily. That's going to cause the price to increase. So I, I don't know how much the state can drop the price to try to compete with the the black market. I always said on this, we shouldn't be legalizing cannabis. We should look at the prosecution for cannabis crimes, but not actually legalizing and give it the government stamp of approval. And I still feel that way. I'm not overly surprised, unfortunately, that the system is in disarray and we're seeing all these black market retail cannabis establishments. That's New York State Republican Assembly Minority Leader William Barclay speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The New York State Senate and Assembly released their one-house budgets last week as negotiations over the governor's proposed 2024 spending plan continue. The Meanwhile, the Forest Preserve Coalition is praising lawmakers for restoring a dedicated funding line to the Environmental Protection Fund's state land stewardship for the Adirondacks and Catskills. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley. The State Land Stewardship Fund pays for things like educational trail stewards, trail maintenance, infrastructure including parking, trailheads, kiosks, sanitation, accessibility projects, and visitor use management planning and implementation. Adirondack Mountain Club Director of Advocacy Kathy Pedler says without the funding, recreation is compromised for both tourists and local communities. You know, having it lined out is so important because it really pins that money to the Adirondack and Catskills and allows projects to be initiated and allows the projects to continue year after year. We got it started last year with $8 million and our ask was $10 million last year, and this year 
you know, we sent our letter again requesting that $10 million in there, and it didn't make it in the executive budget proposal. But, you know, that's why it's so important that the Senate and the Assembly put it in their one house budget. Town of Morehouse Supervisor Bill Farber says local governments in the Adirondacks and Catskills have been advocating for additional stewardship of forest preserve lands over the last few budget cycles. He's pleased that the legislature has restored the funds in their budget proposals. We have such dramatic needs around our hiking trails, our canoe launches, our boat launches. Think about the magnitude of just the Adirondacks. Six million acres of public and private land, three million acres nearly of forest preserve, conservation easement lands. So you've got all of those access points. You've got trails. We've got a lot of work that needs to be done. It could be way more than 10 million, but 10 million at least shows a great commitment to the needs of the Adirondacks and Catskills. And it's great to find the two forest preserves really working together and synced up in a way that that hasn't always been the case. Catskill Center Executive Director Jeff Centerman says the money is critical to take care of state-owned land in the forest preserves. We realize that the Catskills and Adirondacks are the forest preserves for all New Yorkers and and really for for everyone to enjoy. But we're also aware that without properly investing in them, the natural resources can't withstand that increasing level of use. And the other thing that we we have come to understand, especially in light of increasing use over time, is just the impacts on communities. Money will be invested in things like shuttles. It'll be invested in programs like the stewards programs where people are actively saying, you know, I'm sorry this place is full, but here are other options. It's just a a much more active part of uh, knitting together our communities and our forest preserved lands. Farber adds that the Adirondacks and Catskills are deeply rooted in a tourism economy and the stewardship funding is crucial for the economic vitality of the regions. We all, uh, when we're out there in nature, do have an impact, and particularly hiking trails on any kind of steep slopes where there's need for rerouting, where erosion can occur, where water bars are not well maintained. You can have some really dramatic environmental degradation, and it really undermines the experience that hikers would otherwise have. And think about the miles and miles and miles of trail that exists within the Adirondacks, the acres and acres that were trying to maintain here. 10 million is a great commitment, and to see that commitment coming from both houses of the legislature is really meaningful. The Forest Preserve Coalition represents over six and a half million acres, or nearly one quarter of New York's land. The group of 32 organizations and municipalities advocate on behalf of both the Adirondack and Catskill Forest Preserves. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced this week its strongest steps toward the regulation of toxic compounds of national concerns. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard explains. The EPA proposed new maximum contaminant levels for PFAS chemicals this week. Under the proposal, compounds PFOA and PFOS would be limited in drinking water to four parts per trillion. It's the first regulation of its kind from EPA for the chemicals that, in elevated concentrations, have been linked to several ill health effects, including forms of cancer. Four other compounds were also given health advisory levels. 
The news was welcomed by advocates who have for years sought federal regulation of PFAS, including Laureen Hackett of Hoosick Falls, where water contamination was linked to industrial sites. It's been so long, you, you kind of started to wonder if this day was ever going to come. Hoosick Falls residents first found out about the presence of PFOA in the village water supply in 2014. In 2021, three companies blamed for the pollution, St. Cobain, Honeywell International, and 3M, agreed to pay $65 million to settle a federal lawsuit in the Rensselaer County Village. Across the state border in Bennington, Vermont, St. Cobain agreed to a $34 million settlement last year. Bennington College professor and associate director of the Center for the Advancement of Public Action, Dr. David Bond, who has studied the PFAS contamination in the area, said the EPA's announcement puts its policy in line with science. This is a, a step forward. It's a step that many of us felt came at a snail's pace, uh, but it is a step in the right direction. Uh, that said, there are a, a number of concerns about how long it took to get where we are and how few compounds are actually being regulated by this announcement. Thousands of man-made PFAS chemicals have been identified and are used in manufacturing across a number of industries. The American Chemistry Council issued a statement on the proposed regulations on Tuesday, calling EPA's approach misguided, saying the low limits will likely result in billions of dollars in compliance costs. Hackett says the EPA's proposal, coupled with recent bills to restrict the uses of PFAS compounds, should send a strong message to industry. Got it banning it in apparel. We're banning it in food packaging. We ban it in the, you know, the all these bills have passed. So I, I think they see the writing on the wall, and they're really not happy about it with the comments I saw from the ACC. A day after EPA's announcement, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation released final water quality guidance values to regulate PFAS compounds. The final ambient water quality guidance values related to human health are 6.7 parts per trillion for PFOA, 2.7 parts per trillion for PFOS, and 0.35 parts per billion for chemical 1,4-dioxane. DEC says the new guidance values provide an extra margin of safety against harmful PFAS pollution. In 2020, New York State set maximum contaminant levels of 10 parts per trillion for PFOA and PFOS, and 1 part per billion for 1,4-dioxane. With the EPA's new proposed lower thresholds, some advocates say New York needs to catch up. Rob Hayes is director of Clean Water at Environmental Advocates NY. DEC based these PFAS remediation standards on outdated science, uh, and they are not as protective as they should be based on the new science that we have from EPA. The EPA proposal is subject to a 60-day public comment period. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. One of the nation's oldest social community services organizations serving LGBTQ plus people of color kicked off its 25th anniversary celebration this week in Albany. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. In Our Own Voices was formed when four activist groups joined forces in 1998 and established a presence on Central Avenue. In 2003, the organization moved into its present location 
at 245 Lark Street and purchased the building in 2014. CEO Tandra Legrone says with the birthday come big plans for the center. Through the help of Paul uh, Tonko, Congressman Tonko, and the city of Albany, we were awarded combined $1.25 million to build a new LGBT center. Legrone says the new center will include rapid rehousing units, the first to be offered outside of New York City, providing the unhoused with short-term rental assistance and services. So we're hoping a person could come in between three and six months, and then while they're there between three and six months, we can actually transition them to, to permanent housing through Albany Housing or through um, apartments or um, uh, apartments or space through private industry as well. So we'll do the work um, to really address what is, what is the need around that they're needing so they don't become chronically um, unhoused or, or homeless. The short-term tenants would be able to avail themselves of other services, including job training and emotional support. Albany Housing Authority Executive Director Chiquita Diarbo says the organization and the AHA are partnering to open five temporary apartments on Green Street. I am honored to announce that In Our Own Voices will operate a satellite office at 200 Green Street. I don't know your start date, <laughs> but she will be. they will be there. <laughs> um, in create, in, increasing their capacity um, and accessibility to continue their impactful work combating oppression and marginalization, which proudly strengthens the voices of the LGBT people of color and the surrounding communities. Mayor Kathy Sheehan has declared March 30th in our own Voices Day in the city. This is a country that celebrates everyone. This is a country that loves our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and uh, that loves our uh, people of all races, ethnicities. Uh, we ain't going back. And so I think this is an opportunity for us at 25 years to say, you know what, we're, we're hitting some headwinds that we didn't expect. But we are blowing through it because there are more of us than there are of them. And we have to continue to advocate for one another and stand up for one another and be voices for one another and learn from one another. Diarbo broke into song. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to in our own voices. A birthday party is planned for Saturday at In Our Own Voices, Lark Street headquarters. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. There's a debate underway about how many miles of road should be allowed in parts of the Adirondacks, specifically on wild forest lands, places like the High Peaks Wilderness. The Adirondack Park Agency has been trying to settle that debate for the last year. The APA is now turning to the public to ask for more input on a complex issue. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell has the details. Back in 1972, New York adopted a state land master plan for the Adirondack Park. It laid out how it would manage millions of acres of state land in the park. One part of that plan put a limit on road mileage. Specifically, it said from 1972 onwards, 
there should be, quote, no material increase in the amount of roads on state wild forest lands in the Adirondacks. But as the APA's Megan Phillips told the board last week, that 1972 limit was pretty vague. Material increase for roads was never formally interpreted by the agency. We haven't officially determined what that road mileage was in 1972 or what additional mileage would constitute materiality. In other words, the APA has three big questions to answer. One, how many wild forest roads were there back in 1972? Two, what counts as a road? And three, what does material increase actually mean? The APA has unofficially answered the first question. There were 211 miles of wild forest roads back in 1972. The second question, what counts as a road, is still up for debate. But APA Board Chairman John Ernst thinks there's a clear answer there. It comes down to one very, you know, simple sentence, which was quoted and is in all the documents. A road is maintained by the Department of Environmental Conservation or other state agency and open to the public on a discretionary basis. One category of road that's gotten the most attention in this debate are ones built specifically for people with disabilities. Ernst thinks those roads should be included in the total. Adding those 21 miles of access roads puts the current total at 228 miles. That's well over the baseline set in 1972. Board member Jerry Delaney said one way to get around that is just not to count those roads for people with disabilities, not to include them in the total. At last week's board meeting, Delaney said that would avoid having to close other public roads and wilderness areas around the park. I'm going to ask this board, when are you willing to close Vanderwacker, the nine miles you just gave to them? When are you going to take the mileage away from Boreas or when are you going to take the mileage away from Essex Chain? Those accesses were given because they were important accesses. There was still no consensus at last week's APA board meeting about what counts as a road and about what material increase in mileage actually means. The APA is looking into four different definitions of material increase. The fourth is open for public comment right now. It essentially confirms the 211-mile baseline from 1972. It also says that any mileage at or below that doesn't count as material increase. But it would mean that roads would likely need to be closed in the future. It would also mean the APA would have to revisit the definition of material increase down the line. The APA is accepting public comments on the issue through April 17th. I'm Emily Russell. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2312. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at the same time. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. <laughs>